Greetings, Feminist Survival Project 2020 listeners. Emily here with a fun and exciting announcement. I wanted to let you all know that we have joined the Frolic Podcast Network. Frolic is a podcast community of everything romance and romance related. As you know, I am both a reader of and author of romance fiction. And Amelia, while romance is not necessarily her direct thing, is a super fan of many kinds of genre fiction. And anyone who reads and or writes romance knows the value of self-care. So we're really excited to be a part of this community. If you're into romance in any flavor, check out the other podcasts on the Frolic Network. It includes one of my very favorite podcast smart bitches trashy books which is sarah wendell's podcast about romance she's super amazing amelia and i have been on it a couple of times we love her a lot what does this mean for you about the show ah! nothing's going to change about the way we create the feminist survival project or about the way it is brought to you it just means you're going to be connected to more shows to enjoy more things to make you feel good more things to help you survive 2020 you can find new shows to add to your podcast subscriptions at frolic.media slash podcasts. Oh, here comes Thunder. Thunder wants to say hi. Thunder wants to subscribe to new podcasts. So from now on, you're going to hear an introduction on our podcast that's about, hey, we're a member of the podcast network. And at the end of it, you're going to hear another. We're part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Uh, and that's all that's going to change about it. And hopefully it's a way for us to connect with more audience members and for you, the audience, to connect with new podcasts that will make your life easier to survive in the shit show that is 2020. Thanks! Welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. This is a podcast for any feminist who feels overwhelmed and exhausted by everything you have to do and still feels like they're not doing enough. I'm Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. And for us, a feminist is anyone who believes that being a woman is neither a disease nor a moral failing. And what we're talking about this week is a phenomenon that is called in the research time affluence. Time affluence is the concept that people who value time over money are happier. So here's the short version. Time is the one and only completely limited resource. Once it is gone, it is gone and you can never get it back. I was introduced to this idea when I participated in a political campaign training because in a political campaign, there is a hard deadline, election day, so time is your one and only genuinely limited resource where there is nothing that can replace it once it is gone. So at the same time that that training happened in my life, it was around 2004. Remember 2004? <laughs> yeah. When George Bush was the country's worst nightmare? Yeah. I was in grad school. I was in my doctoral program. And I heard someone talking about live each day like it's your last I was making a decision about whether to stay in my doctoral program or quit and start working for a political campaign because I wanted to do whatever was going to sort of make the biggest impact on life. And I was like, in the short term, a political campaign is definitely going to make a bigger impact. And I had to think very critically about why I was staying in a doctoral program when it was going to take years 
before it would pay off into any kind of me making a difference in the world at any kind of scale. And what I decided was that the statement, live each day as if it's your last, was totally bogus. It made no sense because let's face it, if I lived each day as if it was my last, I would eat exclusively pistachio and strawberry ice cream mm -hmm. and I would not leave my house. Yeah. Under any circumstances. Yeah. That is how I, if today were my last day. Yeah. Doesn't arm the, we have a tax accountant who says live each day like you have a year to live or like five years to live. So right. So you have something to goal to aim for. So in 2004 and five, what I decided was to live each day as if I have about 10 years. Yeah. Because that was the time scale at which I could justify committing to a long-term project that was not fun, which is completing a doctoral degree. And it has served me extremely well. Because if I live today as if it were my last, would I be working on a book? No, 100% guaranteed you give up on that. Definitely not, because fuck that. Yeah. Definitely can't finish it. Yeah. So, but if I have a 10-year no. timeline, I have time to finish the book, publish the book, promote the book, learn from the experience of promoting the book. Yeah. Bam. Feel like that book made a difference. 10 years. And every year, my 10 years starts again. So I add a year on. Our family tends to live to like 70 or 80 years. Yeah. So when I get into my 50s or 60s, that 10 years is going to look kind of realistic. And I might even shorten it to live as if I've got five years. Yeah. And I recognize that the universe could choose to run me over with a bus mm -hmm. or give me cancer at any time of its choosing. And that's fine. I'm not living with feeling like it would be unfair for me not to get those 10 years. But I need a framework in which to make decisions about how I spend my life. And what the research tells us is that people who value time over every other resource are the ones who are happiest. Well, time over every other resource, not time over every other priority. Right. Choosing people as a priority. Yes. I'm sad to say because this is not how we were raised people? and it's very difficult really? for me. People, people, uh, people who need people are losers. No, I'm just, I know. Are the luckiest people. That's true. Barbara, you're so right. That's so, true. but as far as resources go, we are trained socially to value possessions, physical objects, the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, what our houses look like to present to the world information about who we are that will prove that we belong, that we are worthy of love. Mm -hmm. That is what we are told is our goal in life is to acquire the things that will communicate to the world that we are worthy of existence. And that is not a formula for happiness. Yeah, the research is very clear on this one. Yeah. There's no contrary evidence. However... Which, of course, as soon as we say it, you're like, obviously. Yeah. And yet this exists... And look at how you make decisions. Right. The social conditioning that's telling you that what's more important than the time you spend with your family is going to work to earn the money to make sure that your kids have the, you know, the, the shoes that they're going to make them not get made fun of at school which is definitely an experience for them, which they value highly. Uh, it's complicated. Yeah. Can I tell you how I learned about the time over money yes. thing? I have stepkids and I have to decide, I want to spend money on them. I want to give them stuff. Like I, it's a, it's a compulsion that I have in my heart. I want to, is it? I see them and I want to like give them stuff. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I want to like, here's, here's stuff. Like, I, yes. 
I want to, because, I mean, like, I don't know how to express, like, love like a real person. So I want to give him stuff to be like, look, love. Because yeah. I don't know how to give love, so <laughs> I give him stuff. Have a present. Yeah, have a present. Yeah. So I learned that the thing that actually is best for everybody around is when I spend the money on a vacation we all take together. Right. right? And again, this is what the research definitely confirms. Yeah. People who spend their money on experiences are yes. happier than people who spend their money on stuff. Yeah. So this is the way I get to I get to act on that desire to spend the money on the kids who are not kids. They're all fully grown now. They're in their 20s. But it means that we get to have a thing and that thing is an experience. And then the memories of that experience and conversations about that experience and the time we have together in the month is just it's it's so, so true. The time is the thing that matters. Yeah. And when to truly value time, you have to recognize that it is a profoundly limited resource. So there's a couple of activities mm -hmm. that the research suggests that you imagine. So take a 10-minute writing exercise. If this day were your last, right? Keep in mind what a short amount of time. You have 24 hours, which is how many minutes, which is how many seconds. So what would you do if this was your last day. We know that when this kind of question is framed in times of how little time you have left versus how much time you have left, it increases your ability to notice pleasure. So this thing called hedonic adaptation, uh, which is what happens when you're eating ice cream out of the tub, for example. Um, you just like that first bite of ice cream, you're like, yeah. Oh, God, God, and then you just God. shovel the rest in and mindlessly. Yeah, and like the more you keep shoveling ice cream into your face, the less delicious it becomes. That's hedonic adaptation. When you bear in mind in this like writing activity how little time you have left, that thwarts hedonic adaptation. Yeah. You stay aware of how delicious and excellent yeah. pleasurable things are when you stay aware. This, this idea of time affluence protects pleasure. Whereas if you consider you've got lots of time, oh, it, yeah. it makes it easier for you to forget what feels good and just focus on how much you want or how much more you have to do. So here, I'm going to let's let's so that's activity number one is thinking about how little time you have left. Spend 10 minutes writing what you want to do, given how little time you have left. A second activity is breaking down how much time you actually have. So instead of thinking about a year, it is, as we all know from the musical Rent, 525,600 minutes. Multiply that by your age. That's, 525,000 moments so near. That's how many minutes you've used already. 525,000, 525,600 minutes. Typically, you spend a third of that asleep. How do you measure? <laughs> Measure a year. It's 28 million waking minutes is your typical time spent asleep, which is just 350,000 waking minutes per year. 350,000 waking, waking minutes. minutes. So that means if you are 20 years old, you have 21 million waking minutes left in a typical life, which is 80 years, give or take a decade in America, if you're a woman. Um, if you're 30, you've got 17 and a half million waking minutes left. If you are 40, which is about us, you've got 14 million waking minutes left. If 14 are, million is like more leaves than there are on the trees in this whole neighborhood. Yeah, but minutes are really short. Yeah. Okay. I thought we were talking about how much time we have and making it feel like it's a lot. Isn't that what we're doing? 
No, we're talking about how much time you have and making it feel like less. Oh, okay. So if you're 40, you have 14 million minutes left. If you're 50, you have 10 and a half million minutes. Okay. So what we're trying to do is prevent hedonic adaptation. Right. Okay. If you are 60. By being aware that there are scarce minutes. You have about 7 million minutes left. Yeah, that doesn't help me. Oh, it's not helping you? No. It helps me when I think about it this way. It makes me feel like it's, it's so much. Okay. Once you say that, you have millions of things. Oh. I must have a lot. Well, then never mind about that. Well, but it might help somebody because if it helps you, then it helps somebody else too. Okay. So I find it useful to think like, here's how much you've got left. Like these tiny little fragments of time, these minutes, which are so little. You've this. Um, And I also, I like to live, like I said, as if I've got 10 years left to live. So I'm 42 right now, which means I've got until I'm 52. What can I do in that window of time? My first thought is, okay, so I live in this house with this human and these two cats and these two dogs. Two of the cats and one of the dogs definitely going to die in the 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I want very much to make sure that they have a great remainder of their life. That's like my first priority is I share my house with these animals. Good. One of the dogs and the human very likely to live the entire 10 years with me. Which means that I want by the end of the 10 years for them to have a positive sense of me and to have lived a happy life, right? And then there's the stuff that is about like meaning and purpose. Like I want to finish writing the revision of Come As You Are that I'm currently working on. I want to write one other nonfiction book. I want to write at least one other fiction book. These are things I can accomplish in the next 10 years. I want to change my life so that I fly fewer times because the time of my life that I spend traveling is not time that I'm spending maximizing my well-being. I'm stoned off my gourd in order to tolerate the travel. And that is not like the best use of these fragments of time that's available to me. How much of my time am I spending in a stupor of medication. (laughs) Like that's, it's motivating for me to, if I've got only 10 years left, how much of that 10 years do I want to spend on an airplane? Mm -hmm. Less, less of that time. Mm -hmm. But I also want to spend it in high quality. Like I want to like be really committed to um, resting really well and like moving my body and feeling alive in my body. As I age, I feel very much the ways that I'm losing control of my body, how it's sort of like disintegrating within me. Entropy. Yeah. Like I feel that. Yeah. And I know that there's stuff I could be doing to slow that down and to stay living and alive in my body. And I want to do that stuff. Yeah. I feel like 10 years is too long for that to be, be, for that to be helpful for me. I feel like 10 years is. That's interesting. How long do you need to be? Does it have to be down to five? It's a matter of months for me. For me to make it feel like really this is a thing that matters and I need to pay attention to what's going on yeah because if I've got 10 years I don't care how clean the house is for 10 years but for the next six months if I'm gonna be alive for six months I want to live in a house that's clean if I'm gonna be alive for six months I want to make sure that I'm healthy for all of it because mm-hmm. if it's 10 years I feel like I've got time and I can do it later I feel like six months is a good number for me that is fascinating yeah I feel like that's a, a duration Because it's of been time. 10 years for me for yeah. fully 15 years. So here's the difference between how we have perceived our lives 
that I, since the eighth grade, was going to get a doctorate in conducting and become a conductor. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, I got my doctorate in conducting and now I'm a conductor and I teach college. Basically, my lifetime goal was accomplished. Mm -hmm. And now the, the rest is just bonus. It's just extra. Now I'm just enjoying like, you know, I got to the place I wanted to be and now I'm just going to like enjoy being up here at the top of the mountain. I mean, sometimes the mountains got thin air and like, it's not all enjoyable. Sure, but, sure. But you know, like, I feel like it's all just extra. I don't need a 10 year plan. Like if I can just make sure that the next six months are solid. Yeah. I feel like six months is the right amount of time for me. Wow. And also the kids are grown. The kids are grown. Yeah. And six months is the amount of time it takes to plan a thing with the kids because <laughs> oh God, their schedules and they yeah. never get back to you because you know how it is with 20 year olds. So this is the question. How long a window do you, the listener, need? Mm -hmm. I need 10 years because I never had like a thing I wanted to be when I grew up so that it would be done. I just, no, I never had that. No. I like so, take one step toward the next thing. Before I did my doctorate, it was always until the doctorate's done, until the doctorate's done, until the, and whatever age that was, I was always planning to that. I had no plans after that. So for the first half of my life, it was here's the deadline. Here's the thing that I'm staying alive for. Here's the thing I want to accomplish. It was not a timeline. It was a... Now you're like, I did it. And now I'm like, I did it. And everything else is extra. Wow. Yeah. So do you feel like rich in time, affluent? Absolutely. I do. I feel like I got this time at all. This is, a, I really, I thought I was going to be, I didn't think I'd live past 40. Yeah. Because my body well, was so Well, another part of this is that, like, because the first thing that happened to you when you were born is that you right. died, basically, right. almost. Yeah. 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 Your body learned to be broken and that life itself she, was a threat. Yeah. And so in your 20s, you really thought you were going to die. I didn't think I'd live past 40. No, no, no. I thought I was just so... Broken. Yeah. So sickly all the time. I didn't think I'd, but now I'm healthier than I've ever been, basically. I have less pain than I ever had. So now it's just extra. Yeah, I absolutely feel like all of this is bonus for me. Yeah. And is that a source of like joy and pleasure? Yeah. I do have to remember to put it in context to think about it for me to take pleasure from it. I've definitely gotten like in the first couple of years after I finished my doctorate, I got habituated to it. I got used to it. I took it for granted. But then when I'm like planning vacations with the kids or planning Thanksgiving with the kids or planning like when the book was going to be done, that was like a, if there's a thing to plan a few months down the line that keeps me in the world and committed to doing things like, you know, day-to-day -day maintenance mm -hmm. of my house and cooking meals and doing the boring stuff that needs to be done, but doesn't immediately give me pleasure, but has to be done in order to give me pleasure in the next few months. So you keep talking about cleaning the house and I know it's it's in the notes to talk about cleaning. It's because when I was really thinking about this, it was after our two dogs died. We put both of our dogs down on the same day mm -hmm. a couple of years ago and it was awful. Mm -hmm. And, but we had been postponing doing a lot of house maintenance right. until the dogs were gone because one of them was severely incontinent Very and yes. like pooping daily And there's no in sense the in house. replacing the carpet because... Your dog's just gonna like have it. watery poop on yeah. the carpet. Yeah. yeah. So we were putting a lot of stuff off. So when the dogs died, I started cleaning the house and I hated it <laughs> so much. And I had to change my relationship with the cleaning. I had to think about like, why am I spent... If I've only got 10 years... Why am I spending all this time? Because I would spend like an hour a day 
cleaning the house or two hours a day because that's how badly the house needed cleaning. We had lived in the house for... Dude, there's people listening who are like, I spend three hours every day cleaning my house. No, there's not. Yes, there are. Three hours every yes, day? Yes, every day. Yes. So on average, according to the American Time Use Survey, I it's one hour a day. I literally vacuum their whole house every day. They have kids with allergies. They literally have to vacuum the whole house every day. They wash sheets every day. It's hours and hours every... So some people are... You say one hour or two hours. Okay. There's definitely people in the audience who are like, that is nothing. And then there's probably people who are like, oh my God, an hour? So I tend not to do it. And I tend to binge clean. Yeah. So like not do it for days at a time and then spend all day doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it averages out probably to the same number of hours total, just not. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to think like, why am I spending my time doing this? And I had to change my relationship with the house. I become like cleaning has to happen. That is (laughs) like I and it like it took me. A lot of being like, why? Why does cleaning have to happen? Because I went a lot of years without cleaning. And we accumulated tumbleweeds of dog fur. Tumbleweeds. Yeah. Like, yeah. Dust bunnies that are the size of, you know. The dog. The dog. Yeah. So why? And rather than just being about like, well, to get the dirt out of the house, for me, in order to justify spending the very limited amount of time I had, like I only have so much time. Why am I spending it doing this? And I had to make the decision that it's because when I spend time caring for the house, cleaning the floor, cleaning the walls, cleaning the dishes, I am caring for the little pocket of the world where I am safe and protected. So when I clean the walls of my house, I am caring for turning toward the walls of my house with kindness and compassion and gratitude and making it important and taking time to cherish the role that the walls play in my life. I feel that way about painting and like, oh God, handyman type. Yeah. Like I kind of take cleaning for granted, but I really feel like when I paint a room, it, it shapes the place I live in a way that's valuable and impactful and creates a harmony that is beyond just I live here yeah I know you've never painted anything in your house yes I have I painted the room we're sitting in you painted this room yes wow you'll notice the windowsills are not painted yet yeah the trim is not painted trim is hard to paint it's tedious it's not as rewarding as walls yeah And the only way I'm ever going to do it is to, like, tell myself this story that by turning toward my window trim with gratitude and compassion, I'm, like, turning toward the walls that protect me and keep me safe and a little bubble of safety and non, um, no Republicans. For me, it's the impact of, like, oh, it's done. Look how nice that is. It is much too much work for me to. It is. It is a lot. Yeah, it's agony. I say this as somebody who just painted their kitchen. Yeah. Like three weeks ago. So I think about the way I spend... This is one of the places where the analogy between time and money breaks down. Because the way you spend your time is counted in minutes. Just like money can be counted in units of money. But there's also like the intensity and quality of that time. Like the time I spend writing is wonderful 
agony, but wonderful. Whereas the time I spend painting the windowsill is misery every moment. So it's not just like a dollar per minute. It's like a million dollars a minute. Like it is so emotionally expensive. There's an interaction between time and emotion. Whereas with money, like it's like $150 is $150. And where am I going to spend the $150? Am I going to spend it on a pair of Rothy's or on 10 bad pizzas? I feel like there's emotion associated with that too, though. Is there? Yeah. People have feelings about what they buy. Are you kidding? Yeah. Don't you have feelings about the stuff you buy? Well, yeah, but it's not the spending of the money in the moment. Like once the money's gone, the money's gone. Yeah. Okay. This is the difference between like experience spending versus thing spending. Gotcha. But you also have talked about this, how you, even though the research is very unambiguous, that spending money on experiences is better than spending money on stuff. People who value time over money are happier. And people who spend money on experiences, that is to say, people who spend money to change how they spend their time, are happier than people who spend money on stuff. stuff. But also, you have talked about the ways that you really value the stuff that you spend your money on. Like, when you redo your kitchen floor... Oh, God, my floor. Like, you continue to... You do not experience hedonic adaptation to your kitchen floor. I I do to an extent, but... Every time I look at my soapstone countertops, I like want to lay my face on them. (laughs) Every time I walk in, I'm like, oh, when we redid the kitchen floors in our last house, I took active pleasure in those floors for like a year and a half. Every time I walked in the kitchen, I was like, yes. When I paint a room, I walk, it it lasts a long time. I don't adapt very quickly. That's what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah. But I do feel like all of this valuing time over money lives in contradiction with the larger scale cultural message that what you have to do to prove that you deserve to be here is show people by having the stuff. You don't feel that pressure to show people that you have the stuff? Almost never. The only time that I feel that pressure is in situations where I have learned that I have to. Mm. So work situations, especially Mm. when I travel to a place and I show up, I'm expected to be the character of Emily Nagoski, the educator, Mm -hmm. which means I'm wearing makeup, I'm wearing dress clothes, Mm -hmm. I'm wearing the expensive shoes. Mm -hmm. And I I put on the show of being that person. It took me years to learn that I was violating people's expectations when I didn't play the role, when I didn't have the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that I was less effective at my work because I was not showing up with the stuff. I think that puts you in a distinct minority. I agree. And that almost everyone else learns from a very early age how to conform to people's expectations so that when you show up, you meet them where they're at, and then you can start to have whatever conversation you were there to have in the first place. Yeah, I think that very few people get to adulthood without feeling that the first thing they have to do is meet people's expectations. No, I'm a, I'm a weirdo and a failure at like <laughs> basic human interaction things. Like yeah. I, the fact that it <laughs> took me all those years to realize that I would be more effective at my life's work. Like I would be pursuing part of the meaning and purpose in my life when I spent time putting on eyeliner in the morning yep that was that was hard for me and the way like being a person who has always valued time 
so much more than money to spend time putting on eyeliner and mascara and fucking eyebrow shit. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it takes me between five and ten minutes to apply makeup on a day when I wear makeup. Mm -hmm. Why am I spent? Like, I've only got so many minutes in a day. I've only got ten years in my life. Why am I going to spend time putting on eyebrows? Why am I doing that? Mm -hmm. And the reason is because when I do that, people take me more seriously. Mm -hmm. Worth it. Yeah. So as, as a weirdo who has always valued time more than anything else, like, why am I spending my time doing that? Oh, right. It's because the time I spend doing my work work will be more of a payoff. Yeah. That is my job. Putting on makeup is my job mm -hmm. when I do, on the days when I do it. Yeah. Am Most I? people have no hesitation devoting time to that. Most people have the have the lack of balance in what it takes to... They have to spend their time doing things that allow them to put on that show. I'm, like, having this sudden revelation that I am and always have been innately a time minimalist. Yeah. Like, just enough. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to... Like, I've only got this much space. What am I going to do with it? I only want to do with it the things that really matter to me. And it has taken me a long time to learn that there's a non-linear relationship between the way I spend my time and the, you know, achievement on my meaning and purpose in life. Mm -hmm. Some of the things I have to do in order to achieve my meaning and purpose are things I hate doing, like putting on makeup and shopping for clothes. So you only wanted to do things that spark joy and you had to learn to be a maximalist and keep nice things in your time house because people expect you to. Right. They're not things that had inherent value for me. They have yeah. value only insofar as they help me right. with the other stuff. Yeah. Whereas I think most people listening already fill their time with stuff because they have to. Definitely. Because it's expected of them. We absolutely have the experience of people talking to us about the ways it's revelatory for them to like think about the way they spend their time and that they can make an active choice about whether or not to spend their time and money on these things. Yes. That they we're, we're conditioned choose. from so early to think that we don't have any choice. We absolutely have to spend our time doing whatever it takes to show the world that we, we belong. Yeah. Like Jill in the eighth grade uh, theater camp. Uh, yeah. So I think we cut this from the book. Or no, we didn't. When we were in theater camp in the eighth grade, in the summer, I think before eighth grade, Jill, who's one of the popular girls, was also at the theater camp. And uh, I was in a group. We were writing a play. We were working really hard. We got to a place where we all felt stuck. And I intuitively just sort of like stood up away from the table where we were all sitting and working and like got up and wandered around, which uh, anyone who's read the rest chapter of Burnout knows that default mode kicked in, got up and wandered around. And Jill goes, where are you going, Emily? And I was like, I was just taking a break, just wandering around, letting my brain rest. And she was like, what would happen if we all did that? And I was like, I feel pretty sure that we would all be healthier and happier and more productive. I didn't say that out loud, but uh, I just felt judged and criticized. And I always had an intuitive sense that if I follow my body and brain's demands for where I should be spending my time, I will make the most of what my body and brain can do. 
That has always been true for me. Which makes you a weirdo. Totally, because Jill, the popular girl, who's clearly really good at doing what people expect her to do, yes, was like, sit your ass the fuck back down yeah. and behave yeah, because you are breaking the rules. Yeah. And um, she was right insofar as if I had stayed sat down, I would not be making the most of what my brain and body are capable of doing, but I would be increasing people's willingness to engage with me in a project because I would not be violating their expectations. So I acknowledge that I am presenting a point of view of a weirdo where I'm like, hey, you get to choose. If you trust your body and just go with what your body's demanding of you, you're going to make the most of it. But Turns like, out that's not literally say. true. Yeah. Because um, if you just go ahead and do that, people are going to be like, fuck that chick who just like does what her body and brain suggests she does without reference to other people's expectations. And then she violates our expectations. And then we're not sure we can trust her. Because we're a hive species and we need to cooperate. Right. Yeah. I I didn't know about the cooperation as part of the hive species. (laughs) And I've had to learn to make compromises in the way I spend my time. Mm -hmm. It turns out that is worth it. Is this a lesson that can be useful for other people? Actually, I would. if there are other people listening who are like, I too had to learn the lesson that it is worthwhile to compromise and spend time according to other people's expectations so that you could cooperate with them, even though your whole body and brain was like, no, just be efficient. Just do the thing. Do the stuff your body and brain need to do. Is there anyone else who had to learn that lesson? Did even you have to learn that lesson? No. no. Doing what I was supposed to do, what the external world told me, I was much better at that than you. So much. I def- I was not good at it, but I definitely prioritized it. And I had to learn through explicit instruction. Like if you told me that my body had intuition to tell me what it needed, I, I would not have believed you. I, I thought that how to be in the world was instructions you get from the outside. So no, I had to, I had to learn to listen to, no, mm -mm, no, I had to learn the other way. So in this question of how should one spend their time, we learned opposite ways of how to do it. You intuitively were like, I am supposed to do the things I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And you could ignore your body for years at a time. Yeah. And nor I didn't even know I was ignoring it. I just thought I was doing right. what I was supposed to do. And that includes like wearing makeup and yeah. dressing yeah. up in clothes. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I wore pajamas for the first 30 years of my life. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that might, that might be almost literally true. And it took me years before I was like, oh, I'll be more effective at my work if I put clothes on mm-hmm. and makeup and shoes mm-hmm. and carry a bag that people perceive as a bag. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. So this episode that was supposed to be about time affluence and how we know for sure that when you bear in mind how little time you have, mm-hmm. you're happier. Mm-hmm. And when you invest in how you spend your time, mm-hmm. you're happier. This has actually ended up being an episode about how I had to learn to compromise mm-hmm. on my own sense of valuing my time over anything else. I had to recognize that how I spend my time needs to be compromised from what feels deeply right to me to making sure I spend some of it doing things that feel right to other people. Whereas the rest of us had to learn that we're not going to use our resources 
to show the world that we belong. We're going to use our resources to do the things that give us joy and make us feel like we belong to a community, like going on vacation with our families, as opposed to putting a new addition on our house to show the neighbors how successful we are. Really? Yes. Yes. So if you had to choose one of those two paths, which one would you choose? Would you prefer to be in my shoes where like you learn that you have to compromise or your shoes where you learn that you can... Here's the shoes I'd want to be in. I want to be in Jill's shoes where I was super great my whole childhood at doing what people expect so that I had friends and I didn't feel ostracized. I didn't get bullied. I want to be that kid who doesn't have very difficult time socially in school who really believes that they have to like show the world that they belong put on the makeup and wear the clothes and then who does what i did which is where i learned that oh my body tells me what i need and i can i can choose to spend those resources on what it tells me is valuable i want to start out as jill and end as me okay (laughs) but definitely not me no (laughs) Because I have the same sort of like ostracization, social blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We were both there the day that Kelly, another one of the popular girls at camp, came out of the cabin where all the popular girls were staying and told us that they'd been having a conversation about us (laughs) and they wanted to let us know that they knew we wanted to be friends with them and they were not going to be friends with us. Yeah. And I looked at them and I was like... I have literally not been thinking about you guys at all. And you had this whole conversation about us when we weren't thinking about you at, like, we don't want to be your friend. You're totally sure that we want to be your friend and you're so sure about it. You spent time talking about us. I don't understand that at all. And it just feels so gross and creepy. And I want to be isolated and have you ignore the fact that I made a choice to be isolated. So there's the difference between being an adult and being a child and how you spend or what you value as a resource. So I think that when you're a kid, it feels so important to fit in to that doing whatever it takes and being good at that fitting in feels much more impactful and really does shape who you become as an adult. Like, did you have a smooth journey or did you have a rough journey? That is different than when you're an adult and you have more perspective and it's your own resources, not your parents' resources, that you're spending either on things that give you joy and shape your humanity or things that prove to the rest of the world that you fit in. I think it's less important. I hate when we do one of these and it turns out my moral of the story is not a moral anyone else needed to learn. Yeah, It just sort of reinforces like what a total freak (laughs) I always was and probably always will be. Yeah. There's got to be somebody else. There's got to be at least if you are listening to this (laughs) and you were like, I too had to learn that some of my time had to be devoted to conforming to other people's expectations. Yeah. Because the narrative that they, like my story is of being really frustrated and unsure why I wasn't as effective as I thought I should be given my skills and abilities and realizing that, oh, I have to compromise and waste my fucking time on this other shit that other people value so that they can value me. 
Yeah. And now I live with that compromise. And I'm comfortable with it now because it's been years that yeah. I've been living that way. And you see how effective it is. So you're like, it okay, it's worth it. Yes. Because it makes my life easier. It makes yes. my work better. Yes. Yeah. But it is. this is not a lesson that is applicable to almost anyone else. Almost everyone else has the opposite thing where they worked really hard to conform with other people's expectations. Yeah. And they are... They come to a moment of revelation in their life where they're like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't have to do that stuff. Right. I don't have to do all that stuff. Yeah. Even though I just want to repeat that, like, you come to that revelation and it's a miracle that that even occurs to you that that's an option because yes. the world is telling you so hard. Over and advertising, over. you have to be thin. You have to have these clothes. You have to look this way. You have to, your house has to be decorated. So fucking it Instagram, man. It has to be man, neat and tidy and clean all the time. It's showing you that how things look is so much more important than the experiences you have. And all the research is unambiguous. The experiences you have is what matters. Yeah. To the extent when people post about their experiences, they make sure that their experience looks really good too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a miracle that anyone figures out that time matters more than stuff. Yes. It's astonishing that anyone reaches that conclusion in the 21st century when billboards and magazines and Instagram are all telling you that the stuff is the only thing that proves to the world that you belong in the world. Well, shit. Yeah. So the moral of this episode is time matters more than money. Yeah. Curate your Instagram feed. Yeah, like cut out the shit that makes you feel bad because yeah. you've only got 10 years. Maybe like you can you can like hypothetically pencil in 10 years yeah. and go from there recognizing that you I think it's worth thinking through how what? periods of time feel. Yeah. And if 10 years feels too loosey-goosey to you. Yeah, maybe that is the years. ultimate moral of the story is months. like 10 years is what works for me. A million needs six months yeah. in order to feel like a nice tight sense of like why to keep yeah. what. Yeah. How to spend my time, what matters. Yeah. Whereas I already have gigs scheduled into 2022. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> no, you don't at all. I've got, I've got six months of stuff planned. I have a course to plan for the fall and maybe another one for the spring. Yeah. So like, that's my long term. Like, no, no, no. Mm -mm. So figure out what mm -hmm. your timeline is, where you feel like you can get something important done. But not so much that uh, you feel loosey-goosey freedom to waste your time. Like, what is the most effective way for you to frame your time so that you can spend it doing things that feel really meaningful? And if you have a narrative like mine, I genuinely, truly want to hear from you because even Amelia yeah. does not have She's my narrative. She's got a twin sister who is nothing like this experience, so she needs to know there's somebody. If there is anybody, for realsy, please if do email us. There. What is that? It's a song called If You're Out There. Oh. <laughs> Somewhere out there. Mm -hmm. Someone's just as awkward as I am. <laughs> I think maybe no one out there is as awkward as I am. I believe that there are others. I believe you're not alone. This is no longer an episode about time affluence. It's about Emily's social <laughs> awkwardness. Look. Why could I have this? Why did this insight about time affluence come so readily to me? It's because I started in a totally different place. God fucking damn it. Can I just one more quick like All right. thing that people can do to like figure this out for themselves is remember the things like look around you in your life, in your time, in your schedule, in your house, in your closet. What are the things that actually like spark joy and give you pleasure from day to day, from moment to moment, from place to place? 
Is it is it the stuff? And if there's stuff that gives you pleasure, by all means, indulge in that stuff. But uh, maybe it's not the stuff. Maybe it's the time you spend and how you spend it. It's probably the time you spend and how you spend it. Yeah, probably. According to the research. According to the research, statistically, it's more likely. Yeah. Okay. Although my countertops make me so happy. <laughs> Some people are slow to adapt to uh, pleasure, and <laughs> yeah. you're a person who is slow to adapt. You're just always surprised that anything is any good. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> I can't believe I have a kitchen that's so beautiful. Nobody else is going to like my kitchen, but man, it makes me so happy. Okay. And that is this episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. We're just trying to help us all get through yep. 2020 because it's a nightmare. Pay attention to how much time you need. Pay attention to what brings you pleasure. And sometimes you have to compromise. Yeah. And here comes Thunder Bear. Okay. So uh, you can follow us on the social media at FSP2020 on Instagram and the tweeters. We will not post stuff that makes you feel bad. No. We're always going to avoid posting things that make you feel bad and only post things that can help you feel good. Did you see um, what I put on Instagram? Maybe? For realsy, do email me if you have my experience of having to compromise on how you spend your time so you can be effective in what you're doing. And um, in the meantime, Half Price Chocolate is morally neutral. Thank you for listening. I mean, I think I wore pajamas for the first 30 years of my life. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's true, yeah. <laughs> that, might, that might be almost literally true.